The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's July 20th. The time is 4.01. And on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Nick Weaver. And I'm Marissa Jordan. Later in the show, we'll have this day in history to see what remarkable events have taken place on this date in the past and a look at the weather for this week. Before that, Jake Winters brings you Snow Verated. This week, he reviews the 1995 film Seven. Mandy Butchke takes a look at salary differences at the NBA and NFL. Marissa interviews an NC State professor of computer science on the subject of augmented reality. And Colleen Canan Ferguson brings you her uh, podcast, Legal Work. This week, she discusses your rights while protesting. Mia Cannell and Ian report on the Wake County Board of Elections and early voting on site on NC State's campus. The Wake County Board of Elections approved a general election early voting site on NC State's campus at a public meeting June 30th. The board chose the Creative Services Center over the Tally Student Union and Method Park. The Creative Service Center is located at 1220 Varsity Drive off Western Boulevard near the McKimmon Center. There is a Wolf Line and a Go Triangle bus stop located within walking distance of the Creative Services Center. Student Senator Jackie Gonzalez has been active on the on-campus early voting site initiative and will be working with other student leaders and faculty to increase awareness of the new site. I didn't know where it was either, but um, it's located at 1220 Varsity Drive, um, right in between the Joyner Visitor Center and McKinnon Center on the Cross Western. And um, it's definitely something that we've been talking about as well, because everyone knows where Tally is, but not everyone knows where the Creative Services Center is. We're definitely going to take that into account to make sure that everyone knows um, where it is and that everyone can get there. Not to mention um, the signs that are going to be around and just combining the effort from, you know, all the organizations on campus and support from Wake County and North Carolina Democratic Party. I think, you know, I think every student will be able to find this location easily. At the meeting, 23 speakers from the community spoke on behalf of several common early voting issues, primarily focusing on ensuring polling locations for disenfranchised voters, Sunday voting, and extended hours, especially at the Board of Elections office. NC State voting site was continually brought up by the speakers. The success of the previous tally voting site during the 2012 election cycle was used as one of the many reasons NC State voting site should be reoccurring. Student Senator Logan Graham saw this reflected in campus administration and faculty. He worked with the Director of Transportation, Catherine Reeves, as well as the NC State Fire Marshals to ensure there was parking as well as curbside voting accessibility. Just about everyone on campus really rooting for a site, either at Tally or somewhere on campus, because you know, it's really, really hard to argue against getting students and getting um, all this is an easy place to vote on campus. So. Everyone I ran into, everyone I was working with on campus was incredibly supportive, incredibly willing to work with me to sit down and take time out of their schedule. So it was just really, really fun and honor to be able to do this with all these people who were really motivated and really willing 
to help whatever they could. Although college students are the demographic least likely to vote, in the 2012 election cycle, 16,000 voters utilized the tally voting location during the early elections. Vice Chair of College Republicans at NC State and Student Senator Jack Pashby echoed the success of the previous tally site, but can respect the change of location. Uh, I'm, my name is Jack Pashby, and I'm a junior in nuclear engineering. I'm the vice chair of the College Republicans chapter here, and I'm also a student senator in the College of Engineering. Ideally, it would be at Tally, but you also have to consider that other people from the community are moving in, and there would be parking issues, so I think it's a good balance. Back in the time when uh, NC State had a polling place at Tally, um, 90% of the registered voters actually voted, so I think it's a very important issue for the students here at NC State. Gonzalez recognizes size as one of NC State's assets. Well, I think it's important because we're the biggest, you know, campus, the biggest university in North Carolina. NC State is home to more than 34,000 students and 8,000 employees. The university is larger than all precincts in Wake County with the exception of two and is surrounded by low-income housing and minority voters. NC Perg collected 16,050 signatures on a petition which asked to have a polling place on campus for large two-year and four-year colleges in North Carolina, including NC State. During the 2016 primaries, there was no on-campus voting location, the nearest site being Pullen Park. NC State Inter-Resident Council and Student Government sponsored buses to take students to the polls. The polls closed at 7 p.m. and the buses ran until 8 p.m., but students remained at the polls until 11 p.m. due to long lines. Logan Graham continued to drive students back to campus from the polls long after the buses had stopped. Another sophomore studying political science and student senator, Luke Perrin, said there are promises of continual funding for voting buses. Early voting is a bipartisan issue, as seen through the number of individuals who spoke from different organizations with different political party associations. Not only were members from both the Democratic and Republican Party present, but also some speakers were registered as independent voters. Pashby shares the sentiment that it's a bipartisan issue. Well, it's that there's no yes or no answer. I mean, if you look at the county Republican Party, I mean, I'm, I'm a Republican, and uh, the Republican Party said, you know, we need to stick to the voting sites that were used in the primaries. And my opinion on that is that the whole goal of voting is to have accessibility for everyone. And for students that do not have cars to travel a couple miles and wait a couple hours in line, I mean, that's not really an option for a student that has, you know, the whole day of classes. So allowing them to uh, go on the bus and vote, you know, be back in an hour, it's a great option for students. Student Senator Luke Perrin feels that the hyperpolarization has caused voting to become a partisan issue. Yeah, I think I think voting should be as unpartisan as possible. So I'm not going to say bipartisan. I'm going to say voting should be unpartisan. It shouldn't be Democrats and Republicans working together to ensure voting. It should be the affiliation should go out the window. It should just be voting. And I think it quickly turned, and it will it will always turn into a partisan issue because we're so hyperpartisan now. We're either so left or so right. We're getting so polarized that every issue is going to have divisiveness, and that includes voting, because I know when we're fighting for this side, I know the, one of the members of the Board of Elections was trying to push for less voting sites and said that, oh, students don't need one because college students are creative and they'll find other ways to get the polls, which is just an incredibly right-winged just statement, shrewd up in some fancy lettering to make people laugh, fancy wording just to say, oh, they'll be creative. It's partisan. So it shouldn't be, but it is. It became a right-wing statement because from what you have right now, the Republican Party, is try it looks like they're trying to suppress voters. 
because college students historically vote more liberal. And wouldn't it be easier than convincing college students to vote for, for Republicans? Wouldn't it be just easier if those kids didn't vote? And so it's, it's not just him. It's the whole GOP system. And I'm a Republican. I'm a registered Republican. So it's like my own party, and, it's, and it really makes me mad. But at the end of the day, it's suppressing votes because they know that they're not going to get the votes. The board approved a total of 19 early voting locations, plus the Board of Elections office, which is legally required to be an early voting site. Early voting runs from Thursday, October 27th to Saturday, November 5th. The Wake County early voting locations include Wake County Board of Elections office, Abbott's Creek Community Center, Apex Community Center, Avery Street Recreation Center, Chavez Community Center, Eastern Regional Center, Falcon Park Hut, First Baptist Church in Morrisville, Green Road Community Center, Herbert C. Young Community Center, Nightdale Recreation Center, Lake Lynn Community Center, NC State Creative Services Building, New Bethel Baptist Church, Northern Region Center, Optimist Community Center, Triangle Christian Center, Wake Tech Main Campus, W.E. Hunt Recreation Center in Holly Springs, and Wendell Community Center. Weekday hours at the Board of Elections office will be 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m., 8.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. Saturday, October 29th, 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday, October 30th, and 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Saturday, November 5th. Weekday hours at all satellite locations is 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. and 8.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. Saturday, October 29th, 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday, October 30th, and 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Saturday, November 5th. This has been Mia Canal with Eye on the Triangle. You're listening to Legal Work, a bi-weekly podcast offering legal advice to students recorded from the production room at 88.1 WKNC on the campus of North Carolina State University. My name is Colleen Keenan-Ferguson, and I'm the podcast manager for WKNC. Legal Work, this podcast, is my effort to help educate young adults like myself who may be misinformed about how the law works in specific cases and under specific circumstances. Today's topic deals with protesting and law. Stories of protesting and police brutality have saturated local media and social media networks, and a lot of debate has emerged over the rights of the individual in exercising their First Amendment rights and the rights of the police officer upholding the law. I sat down with a lawyer from University Student Legal Services to discuss the rights of the individual and of the police officer in protesting. When protesting, for whatever reason, it's a good idea to do so legally and to always know your rights. As an American citizen, you do have the right to protest. You have the right to free speech without government persecution. My name is Michael Ferrante, and I'm an attorney with University Student Legal Services. Do citizens have the right to protest? What does that mean exactly? Citizens do have the right to protest. Um, Protesting is something that can be kind of individualized uh, for different people. They might have different views of what it is. But the government cannot stop you from expressing your thoughts. Your First Amendment right is that you have the right to freely express yourself, to peaceably assemble, and uh, also to petition the government. So, yeah, you have a right to protest. Uh, They can put certain restrictions on that, and that could be if a protest is inciting violence, and that would have to be pretty clear-cut. 
cut. They can also place time, manner of speech restrictions and place restrictions on protest or just free speech in general. So an example of that time restriction would be if someone is protesting on a city block at a very late hour in the night and there are residents who live near there. Um, that would be a reasonable time restriction, more than likely. Place restrictions would be something akin to you're allowed to protest on almost any city sidewalk. Uh, however, certain buildings, you're not allowed to go in and protest. Obviously, you can protest outside the courthouse, but if you actually go into the courthouse while court's in session, more than likely you would have a problem. Manner of speech restrictions are all something that can be done. Typically, you see these in the form of law enforcement or municipalities not allowing sound amplification or regulating how big signs can be, something of that manner. One of the things I think sometimes gets confused in this is the fact that, you know, the the right to protest and the right to freely express yourself is your right to not be bothered by the government. That's not the same as individual employers or private entities. Can you be arrested while protesting and what does it take? You can't be arrested merely for protesting uh, as long as that is a peaceful protest. But there are things that sometimes happen during protests that can cause individuals to be arrested. For instance, if a protest gets to such a size or there's some sort of actions that happen that seem unsafe in law enforcement's you know, eyes and there's no bright line test on that, then if someone's not ordered to disperse, they could possibly be arrested under those grounds. If any violence takes place, you know, people can be arrested for that. Protest does not alleviate someone of their actions just because it's a protest. The other thing is, you know, civil disobedience, which is a form of protest. Uh, many people is simply disobeying nonviolently, you know, the law and, and people do that a lot of times here in Raleigh. You see it with Moral Monday, uh, where they will sometimes not comply with orders to leave the legislative building, and then they're arrested for, for trespassing. And that's a means of showing protest, but you have to be willing to accept the consequences there because you will be criminally charged. Do you know how long police officers can hold protesters for if they've been arrested for civil disobedience or something related to protesting? Well, that actually depends. You know, if they are arrested, then they're going to be detained until they make bail or they're put in front of a magistrate or judge. People can't be detained merely for protesting. Uh, an officer can only detain you if they're investigating a crime or making an arrest. So that if you are arrested, it's really going to depend on what you did. Uh, if you go in front of a judge because you were, you know, say, not agreeing to leave and you were, you know, arrested for trespassing, chances are you're not going to be very long in jail and the bail will be low. But if there were violence or something more serious, your bail will likely be higher and you may not be able to leave if you're not able to make that bail. So do protesters have to inform the authorities when they're going to protest or can they just go out on a street corner or in front of the courthouse and just start picketing? Well, that's actually an interesting question, and that's going to depend on where they're protesting. Let's talk about Raleigh, for instance. Yeah. Raleigh is an interesting city, uh, just like any capital city. You've got not only the city property, but you've got state property. You've got the General Assembly, which has you know legislative officers who are you know overseeing that. Uh, the city of Raleigh itself does have city ordinances that deal with protesting. They refer to it as picketing. That pretty much covers that. Um, if you want to know in detail about those ordinances, they're listed online. You can go and take a look. But basically, in Raleigh, you would need to get a permit if you're going to have a group of 10 or more and to protest. And there is an officer at the Raleigh Police Department who deals with this. His name is Officer Stokely. Now, the city itself requires that you give him 24 hours notice. And the things that they ask you are actually in the ordinance. It's Ordinance 12-1056, which is called Picketing Permitted Notice of Intent and Receipt Requirement. 
required. They're going to ask you some questions. They're going to want to know the name, if any, of the organization or group who are sponsoring or proposing to pick it. Um, now, you can actually do this anonymously. So you can say, I would like to do it anonymously, and that will be sufficient for that kind of question. Uh, you have to give them the location or locations in the city where you're going to do it. Um, they want to know if, if something crazy is going to happen, you know, um, well, not only to prepare for it, but if someone shows up and they're doing a protest, and like I said, that can be many forms. They have no idea of it. They don't know if they're responding to a crime in progress or protest. Mm -hmm. So it helps everybody to kind of know yeah. what's going on. They want to know the dates on which it's going to occur. They want to know whether or not persons below the age of 18 are expected to participate. Mm -hmm. And they want to know whether persons in charge, uh, the person in charge of the activity and who will accompany it, and that the person has to carry the receipt, which is going to be that email of Officer Stokely showing that they've done this. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. It's not that much that they're asking for, so it's pretty easy to do. There are also regulations on where you can be. Uh, you can't be on the street. You can be on the sidewalk. They want you to leave mm -hmm. space for the sidewalk to uh, for pedestrians to pass through. They don't want you to block any ingress or egress. You can have placards. They don't want it to be any higher than 36 inches, 3 feet basically. It's also in the limit. Now there's also some areas in Raleigh that are a little different and there's you know different things that are called you know public forums that are traditional public forums. Mm -hmm. A sidewalk, a, par a park, something like that would be one of those. In Raleigh something like Moore Square is mm -hmm. one of those traditional public forums. However, but it's also an area where they have special events take place. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to have something of sound amplification or where it's going to be intense, you're going to have a stage, a podium, anything other than people out there kind of just demonstrating, uh, you would need to get a special event permit more than likely. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's going to take more time and that will have some fees associated with it. But it depends on what you're doing. Again, if you're not going to have all of that, then you don't need to get that special use permit. Protests under uh, 10 people also don't need to get a permit. But most people aren't that sure how many people are going to show up. So it's mm -hmm. probably a good idea to go and go for this process. Again, you may not need to get that permit for more square or some place like that, but it's good to know. Another thing people should know if they're going to protest in Raleigh or anywhere in North Carolina is you can't have weapons at a protest. It seems kind of self-evident, but... Yeah. You know, we are an open carry state for firearms and things of that nature, but you're not allowed to have those at protest. That's by state statute. And weapons are more than simply guns. They can include knives. They can actually the nail file uh, or nail clippers are included uh, because it references a statute that is talking about educational facilities, and these are things that you wouldn't be allowed to be bring on an educational institution either. So, you know, those are all things to, to be aware of if you're going to be in Raleigh protesting. It's important to also know where you are. Some of the property in this town is owned by the state and some are under special conditions. Do police have the right to deny anyone's request for a protest? They can't deny the protest unless it has some certain requirements. Let's say you want to protest in Moore Square. Someone's already gotten a special use permit for that property. You can't protest there. They're not allowed to simply deny your protest permit because you want to do it. In fact, the ordinance says it shall be approved. Now, if there's competing groups who want to protest in the same place at the same time, they actually even have a, pro you have a procedure for that, or they will allow a lot the same space for each side. Now, if it gets to a point where there's either a problem with space or it just gets unsafe, they may ask people to disperse. What rights do police have detaining protesters? They can't detain them during a protest, mm -hmm. only if they're investigating a crime or they're arresting them. So just because you're out there and you're protesting 
or making yourself heard, uh, that doesn't mean that you can be detained. If you are detained, I mean, or if an officer does engage you, it could be out of curiosity or it could simply be to, to engage you because they're, they want to see what's going on. Um, you know, be polite if that happens. Answer, we are not in a state where you have to present identification unless you're driving. You can ask, you know, am I being detained? And if you aren't, you're able to leave. If you're being arrested, you should also exercise your right to remain silent and get legal counsel. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, you can't be just stopped because you're protesting. This is an NC State specific question, but mm-hmm. can students be expelled or face disciplinary actions for protesting on campus? You can't be expelled for protesting on campus. Your free speech rights don't end when you step on the university. Mm-hmm. Now, the university does have policies regarding, you know, protesting as well. Any individual who's a student group or a student who wants to protest on campus, they have to go through a process of permitting, much like in the city of Raleigh. It's a safe idea to contact student involvement or the university council's office to see what requirements you have to do and what is maybe not allowed. For instance, you know, if sound amplification is not allowed or anything like that. But no, simply for protesting, you cannot be expelled or suspended. Obviously, if people are going to be protesting in other areas, they should be aware of where they are protesting. Uh, Most municipalities will have their city ordinances online. You can check ahead of time, and that doesn't take very long. And so you can be sure what you're doing is allowed. If you see individuals who are doing something that is not peaceful, I I think you'd want to distance yourself from them Mm -hmm. as well. Because what they're doing is committing crime. And other states do have uh, statutes that deal with you having to present identification when asked. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be outside of the state, you have to be aware of what those laws are as well. You know, I mean, for the most part, you can just call up the places and ask. I mean, you have a constitutional right to protest, so asking is not going to stop it. Yeah. If you do, it's just going to ensure that you know what you're allowed to do. The, er- the issue of where you can protest, uh, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to do targeted picketing of residents, private residents. Mm-hmm. So even though someone may disagree with an individual's decision or something of that nature, um, you know, our North Carolina general statute say you can't go in front of their house and, and picket and protest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's by state law, and so people wouldn't want to do that uh, because it is, it's a class two misdemeanor. What conditions have to exist in a protest for police to respond to it in full riot gear? Well, that's, that's something that is not a uniform answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, all police departments are... At their discretion. Well, they're at their discretion, but also they're trained differently. There's no standard of when they put on riot gear. And I think they would mostly react to that, you know, Mm -hmm. to the situation. If they expect a hostile crowd, I suppose they may. I think it'd be more likely uh, that if they've seen violence or they've seen something that they would react to that. Or if something gets out of hand, then they will show up in possibly riot gear. But I would hope that it would not be just the de facto response if they believe a peaceful uh, protest is going to take place. My name is Michael Fronte. I'm an attorney at University Student Legal Services, and when I am not providing legal services to the students, I'm listening to WKNC. Interested in protesting in Raleigh? Be sure to contact Officer Stokely at the Raleigh Police Department by calling the permitting office at 919-996-3335. The Code of Ordinances for the Municipal City of Raleigh can be found online at M-U-N-I-C-O-D-E dot com by accessing their library and selecting North Carolina, Raleigh, Codes, and finally, Code of Ordinances. Ordinances 12-1056, 1057, and 1058 all deal with picketing procedures. Ordinance 12 
1058, which regards interference with pickets prohibited, police authority to disperse crowds, failure to leave when ordered, declared offense. And it says, A. It shall be unlawful for any person to physically interfere with pickets in the use of the sidewalk or to address profane, indecent, abusive, or threatening language to or at those pickets which would tend to provoke the pickets or others to a breach of the peace. B. The police officers of the city may, in the event of the assemblage of persons in such numbers as to tend to intimidate pickets pursuing their lawful objective through numbers alone or through use of inflammatory words, direct the dispersal of persons so assembled and may arrest any person who fails to absent himself from the place of such assemblage when so directed by the police. C. Whenever the free passage of any street or sidewalk in the city shall be obstructed by a crowd, whether or not the crowd assembles as a result of or in connection with picketing, the persons composing such crowd shall disperse or move on when directed to do so by a police officer. It shall be unlawful for any person to refuse to so disperse or move on when so directed by a police officer as provided. It is also important to note that the City of Raleigh is currently auditing their private use of public spaces program and updating it so picketing permitting processes may change in the future. For more information on how to protest on the campus of North Carolina State University, please contact Student Involvement at 919-515-2797 or by email at studentinvolvement at ncsu.edu. If you have any pressing legal concerns, you should contact a lawyer. But if you're just curious about how the law works regarding a specific matter, please email me at podcast at wknc.org. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe via iTunes, follow us on Tumblr, or listen on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash wknc881 and never miss an episode. Go outside to any public place in the United States right now, and you're bound to see multitudes of people of varying ages walking around and staring at their phones. But what are they doing? They are playing Pokemon Go, or a new game that incorporates the technology of augmented reality. Augmented reality is quite a phenomenon right now. You can see the technology, which superimposes digital images onto the real world, and everything from Snapchat filters to IKEA catalogs. But what exactly is augmented reality? In my experience, it seems to have just appeared all of a sudden. In order to try and understand this new phenomena and how it differs from other technology, I sat down with Dr. Singh, an NC State professor of computer science, to talk about it. Hi, I'm Muninder Singh. I'm a professor of computer science at NC State. Over the years, I've taught a variety of classes, but recently I'm teaching one on service-oriented computing and one on social computing, which is a new one. Virtual reality, a familiar technology in today's world, is very similar to augmented reality. I asked Dr. Singh to explain the difference between the two. Yeah, so the, the terms are, as, as many industry terms, somewhat fluid. The way I distinguish them is that virtual reality is when you take a virtual world and make it apparent to the user, say through specialized glasses or whatever. Augmented reality is when you're looking at reality as you know it, but you're enhancing it with something else such as additional information. You know, for example, if you look at this building and it tells you, you know, when it was built or who it was named after, 
while you're looking at the building physically. That would be an example of augmented reality. Right now, augmented reality is mostly used for apps like Pokemon Go. Will this technology have a more applicable approach to the real world in the future? Yeah, I do. I do expect that augmented reality will become more and more prevalent. A challenge with the current computing is that it takes us away from reality and augmented reality is a way to bring us back into the real world by taking advantage of computing technologies to make uh, information more accessible and more relevant at the, exactly at the time that you really need it. Are there any dangers or negative consequences you can foresee from this technology? Dangers? Uh, yeah, th- there are always some, you know, with any technology. So, for example, uh, one of the earliest uh, use cases for augmented reality was an extremely creepy one. It was that you find a picture, find somebody walking on the street, and you detect their, their face, you match their face with something you find on social media, and then you retrieve information about them, and you make that information available you know, in a kind of a balloon above their head, right in real time. So this could be used for uh, harmful kinds of things very easily. It could be used to stalk people and otherwise uh, infringe upon somebody's privacy. How about any positive outcomes from this technology? I do. I think there are huge benefits. So the kinds of things that we normally think of are these consumer applications like tourism and so on, where clearly, you know, we can enhance the experience for users. But there are also major applications in enterprises. Like if you wanted to repair an aircraft engine, you know, today what you would have to do is look at a manual and be looking at the equipment and your repair instruments. But with augmented reality, maybe when you look at something, it could tell you what's wrong. It could tell you what steps to take to repair it. It could identify the instruments you want to use or should be using and so on. Another one could be, for example, with civil infrastructure. Like if you could tell you, you know, which buildings were you know, too hot or too cold or which bridges had cracks in them, you know, if there were a way to make that visual, that would, I think, generally improve our, our lives. NC State has a lot of engineering and computer science students. Could this be a viable field for our friends in those majors post-graduation? Yes, I think, but not in the immediate sense. I don't think there are a whole lot of uh, augmented reality you know, jobs coming out like this year. But I think the students that we have are prepared to deal with new technologies. And I anticipate that many of them, a few years down the road, will find themselves working in various kinds of augmented reality applications. Finally, is there anything you'd like to add on the subject of virtual and augmented reality? I would say that it's a great subject. One thing it does is that because it has this novelty effect, I think it draws a lot of interest from people in computer science. So it gives us an opportunity to take advantage of that interest, you know, both in terms of the real-world problems we solve, the technologies we develop, and even at the level of maybe bringing people into computer science. So computer science, as you know, is a remarkably nerdy field. Unfortunately, uh, you know, the, the demographic mix that we have is primarily male. We would like to encourage you know, more women students to uh, come in, be students, and also be, you know, graduate and stay in the field. And I think these kinds of technologies which relate to user experience, maybe they are a new opening for new kinds of people, women and minorities, to engage with computer science. I would like to thank Dr. Singh for his time. And I'm Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Stop it. 
With the recent contracts coming from star players such as new Golden State Warrior Kevin Durant and Indianapolis Colts quarterback Andrew Luck, my favorite controversial argument about NBA players making more than NFL players came back around as it does every year. NFL players especially are the ones most irritated, understandably. Memphis Grizzlies point guard Mike Conley signed the biggest NBA contract in NBA history as he re-signed with the Grizzlies on a five-year, $153 million contract with $140 million guaranteed. Andrew Luck signed a six-year, $140 million contract with only $87 million of that guaranteed. I say only as if $87 million is a small amount, but I mean comparatively to $140 million. While NBA Commissioner Adam Silver has announced the NBA's salary cap will increase from $70 million to $94 million next year, the NBA still trails the NFL, which currently caps off at $155 million. While the NFL has a higher salary cap, its players are still making less than the NBA's players. NFL players reacted on Twitter to the recent NBA signings, commenting that they, quote, chose the wrong sport and they, quote, need to get to the gym to work on their jumper. You and me both. What people do not realize, however, is there are almost four times as many NFL roster spots as NBA roster spots. There are 32 teams in the NFL, each holding 53 roster spots, which totals to 1,696 NFL players. There are 30 teams in the NBA, each holding 15 roster spots, which totals to just 450 NBA players. In the NFL and in the NBA, players collectively earn around half of all league revenue before expenses. The NBA makes an estimated $6 billion in revenue, while the NFL's revenue will surpass $13 billion next season. This means the NBA will divvy out $3 billion amongst its players, and the NFL will divvy out more than $6 billion. The NBA's $3 billion divided by its 450 players equals an average annual salary around $6.7 million. The NFL's $6 billion divided by its 1,696 players equals an average annual salary of about $3.5 million. By just comparing the size of the rosters of the two leagues, an NBA salary is already almost double than an NFL salary. While the NBA and the NFL battle it out for who deserves more money, the MLB, which has no salary cap, is sitting quietly in the corner chuckling to itself. There are six teams in the MLB that have a payroll that is larger than the $155 million NFL salary cap. The Dodgers sitting on top with a monstrous $220 million payroll. Andrew Luck's record six-year $140 million contract with the Colts would only rank 29th among active MLB contracts. In other words, 28 MLB players already have larger contracts than the NFL's largest contract in history. Jan Carlos Stanton may as well be the Bill Gates of the sports world as he swings a bat to the tune of a 13-year $325 million contract. Alex Rodriguez trails behind him taking steroids on a $275 million deal. While you would think big payroll teams like the Dodgers, Yankees, and Red Sox run the playoffs every year, that is not the case. Since 2010, every MLB team except five of them have made the playoffs. There are 30 teams in the MLB, so five teams not making the playoffs is just 17% of the league. Since 2010, 23 of the NFL's 32 teams have made the playoffs, leaving out nine teams, which is 28% of the league. Maybe no salary cap is the way to go. Maybe an NFL farm system is the way to go. I have no idea. I'll let the players and commissioners hash it out while I just sit on my couch on football Sunday eating chicken wings. Thanks for tuning in on Eye on the Triangle. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money.
Hello, this is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snow Verrated, and today we'll be taking a look at the film Seven. Seven is a very well-known movie, and I tend to try not to cover these types of movies because, well, a lot of people have already seen or heard about them. But surprisingly, this came out in 1995, which was 21 years ago at this point. So I figure it's worth bringing up, if not for the people to discover, then for people to rediscover. Also, if you're a huge fan of House of Cards and really like Kevin Spacey in that series, then you would definitely enjoy his performance in Seven. The cast in Seven could really be considered an all-star cast. The three main actors are Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, and Kevin Spacey, as I mentioned earlier on, as well as Gwyneth Paltrow. There are not a whole lot of characters besides these that really matter to the story. I think it goes without saying, for the actors that I mentioned, that their performances will be great, so there's not as much that can be said about these specific performances. I will say, though, that these are definitely all roles that are extremely close to the others that I've seen the actors play before. The wiseness that always follows Freeman is there, the hothead that follows Brad Pitt, and if you haven't already guessed what Spacey is, he's kind of weird. Um, Spacey doesn't always play weirdos, but a lot of the characters I have seen him portray could hardly be called normal. The story is definitely well done and well written. It flows extremely well and does a good job of never over-explaining or leading a character to find a clue without a struggle. The mystery of the movie is never really solved right up until the last moment of the film, and it is a spectacular climax. The climax is an end to a wonderfully complicated chain of events. The story starts as a cop is beginning to retire and a new detective is coming on to the beat. One of my favorite things from the story of the movie is how the plot takes course over just a week. I always try not to spoil things in my reviews, so I'll leave that to you to figure out why that is so interesting. The movie is on par with every other major blockbuster in terms of production. The props look real, and I couldn't even really say for sure if there was CGI or not. There are a couple of scenes that may have had CGI in them, but just saying that I have no idea if there is or not says a lot about the movie. There are some great shots in the movie to help build tension as well. Information is extremely important when a film is trying to build suspense. If you give too much information, there will be no suspense, and if you give too little, there will be no way to tell where the scene is headed, and it will not be as suspenseful as it could be. In a scene where suspense is high, you are constantly figuring out what is going on with the help of the camera. It gives you information, and you piece together what is going to happen. The final scene of the movie is a great example of withholding information from a character, instead of the audience. We as a viewer see what more than one of the characters sees, which means that sometimes we know something that a specific character may not know. So by controlling information, the director can make the audience be held in suspense over what they think the reaction of the character is going to be. In terms of information, the final scene attempts to show us the whole situation, but leaves out some key details. We are left thinking what could possibly go wrong. We get an aerial and we see how wide open the scene is and how alone they are. This choice is most certainly deliberate and it is well done. If they had chosen a more closed off location, the events that occur would not be nearly as shocking. The movie can be a little boring leading up to this scene, but it is well worth the wait. One thing I always feel I need to mention when talking about movies is the amount of blood that they have in them. Um, and Seven is extremely bloody. So if you have a weak stomach, I would not recommend this film at all. I wouldn't say that I have a very weak stomach, and some of the film definitely made me a little sick. I'm going to give this movie a 3.5 out of 5. I can't say that I'm extremely impressed by the film because of any particular reason, but I can't say it let me down in any way either. Seven tells a unique story with somewhat average characters played by great actors and it never shows any sign of a lack of thought in production. If you want to watch this movie, it's available for streaming on Amazon. Thank you for tuning into this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snow Verrated. I'm Jake Winters and I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening.
You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC-FM Raleigh. The time is 4.40, and I'm Marissa Jordan. And I'm Nick Weaver. Today, Wednesday the 20th, we have a high of 90 and a low of 69 and partly cloudy skies. Thursday, we're looking at a high of 89 and a low of 70 with mostly sunny skies. Friday, it's predicted a high of 92 and a low of 72 with mostly sunny skies. And Saturday, there will be sunny skies with a high of 98 and a low of 74. Finally, on Sunday, we have a high of 98 and a low of 74, once again with sunny skies. On this day in history for our history buffs, in 1948, President Truman issues a peacetime draft. And in 1969, Neil Armstrong walks on the moon. In 2012, 12 people were killed and 70 were injured in the Colorado movie theater shooting. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at knc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. I'd like to thank our contributors, Jake Winters, Mandy Butchke, Colleen Kanan ferguson and Mia Connell. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Weaver. Wishing you all a fantastic Wednesday afternoon.